Hey, Ram Church. Happy Sunday morning. We're going to have a great time together today. Now, we're right in the middle of a chapter that uh, I've enjoyed. I hope, I hope you've enjoyed it. The past few weeks, we've been discussing on Sunday mornings, but also uh, we've been talking through it in our home groups midweek. Um, some topics around hope and compassion. And this chapter is all going to culminate um, in a day at the end of this month that we're calling Brighten Up. And it is our Serve Day 2020 at Ramp Church. And it's gonna be a day where all across Ramp Church, we're, we're focusing on a few projects around our city to express the love and the compassion and the heart of Jesus by serving our city. So all the projects that we've chosen were submitted by you. So we, we, we got so many submissions, ideas of things that we can focus on as a church. And so um, our, our, our idea for Brighten Up came from this verse. And this is something that Jesus actually told us to do. So Jesus is saying this to you, Ramp Church. You are the light of the world. A lamp is placed on a stand, Jesus says, where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So our Brighten Up campaign, our Serve Day 2020 is on Saturday, the 25th of July. And you'll be able to register this coming Wednesday. So three days from now, all of our projects are going to be launched online. You'll, you'll get to see how many people are needed for each project. So you'll definitely want to jump on there because some of them have a limited amount of spots to be able to serve. And so you'll be able to register online and all the details from what that project will look like, where you go, how long it'll take, what you need to bring with you, if anything at all. And then you'll be joining others. And our hope through this is threefold. Number one, that our hearts are gripped with love and compassion for our city around us. Number two, that people feel the love and compassion of Jesus as we serve our city. And then number three, that, that this can be a catalyst um, for ongoing works of compassion and love and justice in our city. So um, the next part in this chapter, the next little section of this chapter, we're going to talk about today, and that is on the topic of justice. So the title of my message is The Beauty of Justice, The Beauty of Justice, and you'll see that title, some themes from that throughout our talk. So God is, to kind of set up this teaching, um, there's this idea that I just want to drop on you, and it's the idea that God is redeeming all of creation. He's in the middle of a redemption project, and a lot of times in the church, we've thought about God's end to all of this as, well, we're all going to go to heaven someday and play harps on clouds and just do good things for the rest of eternity. I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, if I strain really hard, I can think how that could be good. But most of the time, that doesn't really sound that appealing to sit on a cloud playing a harp for the rest of eternity. And w when you really dive into the Bible, you, you realize that that idea is not really a biblical idea. Man kind of made that idea, God's idea for where all this is going is a renovation project. I, I think back to some of Stacey and I's homes and we've actually renovated, gosh, we've moved many times. We've, we, we, we've done renovation on three of the homes that we've lived in. And the first house 
that Stacy and I were absolutely in love with because it was our first place to live together. It was tiny, but it was also kind of a dump. But uh, regardless of that, we loved it, and there's not a square inch of that house that we had not painted ourselves. And so there's something about that renovation project and living living in that that even makes you love it all the more. But God's in the middle of his own renovation project. He's in the middle of his own project of redemption. And he recognizes, just like you and I do, that there's something about creation that needs to be made right. And it's not just a shallow thing. It's to the very depths and foundations of what's going on in creation. God looks and he is in the process of redeeming all that's good about creation while removing all that's painful and evil and dark and broken. And I I wanna take you through a couple ideas that show you even the way God unfolds this project of redemption. It's gonna set up our topic of justice for the rest of this message. And we're gonna end talking about how do we do justice? What are some practical ways that we can do justice? So a little a little preface, um, this message will get uncomfortable at times, um, but don't worry, I was uncomfortable first. <laughs> I don't know if that helps you at all, but as I was studying and preparing for this message, there were scriptures that I read that made me really uncomfortable. I was like, man, these are some hard truths to grapple with. But the good news is that God's not asking us to do it alone. His Spirit is here to help us all along the way. So how does God go about this redemption project? Well, the first step is this. He actually starts with our lives. He starts with your life. He starts with my life. He, he doesn't just attack the whole thing, uh, all of creation, all at once. He starts, starts with you. He starts with me. He, and, and He redeems our lives through personal sanctification. And that, that word sanctification is a big word. The Bible uses it a lot. But ultimately what it means is he is remaking you into who you were designed to be, who he created you to be. He's leading you into human flourishing, into a place of thriving. What Jesus would say in John 10, life and life to the fullest or life abundantly. And at ultimately looks like Jesus. So he's pulling us out of a broken place into a place of wholeness. So the first way that God redeems everything in the world is is through relationship with Him. He starts inside of our own heart, and it's an inside-out renovation project where bit by bit, facet by facet of my life, He claims that and goes, hey, I, I know a way to bring you into true life, into true fulfillment, and it's by turning your back on the broken things in our world, in your life, in your own heart, on, the, on, the, on sin and weights and things that hold you down and it's bringing you in to true life. But he doesn't stop there. He starts with our personal life, but then he goes into our relationships and he, he redeems our relationships through spirit-infused community. This is one of the reasons why home groups are, are just vitally important. Church is so much more than uh, an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. And I, I just, if you're new to our community, I just want you to hear that from the get-go, that for us this time that we're having right now on Sunday morning, that's just a tiny part of what church means. Really, you haven't really even experienced church until you've experienced spirit-infused in, infused community. So that's what our, our midweek home groups are, are helping to facilitate true relationships. And this is what I've discovered. God doesn't just bring healing to us by some supernatural miracle or event in our life. Sometimes he brings healing to your heart and to your life by putting you in the healthy version of the thing that hurt you. 
I want to say that again. Sometimes he heals you by putting you in the healthy version of the thing that hurts you. And one of our desires for Ramp Church is that this is a community that you can step into that isn't primarily about, about people being awesome. Uh, I think you'll discover pretty quickly that all of us uh, kind of have issues. All of us are on our own journey to finding God. But what makes this this community powerful is that it's spirit infused, that, that the spirit of God is working in between us to speak his desires and his will through us to one another, that the spirit of God is working in us to heal wounds that we have, that maybe we're inflicted by one another. And that's what a spirit infused community looks like. And God starts with the human heart, but then he puts us in communities where we then find healing. And those communities can then bring healing, not just to each other, but they can actually bring healing to spaces. And that's this next this next kind of uh, uh, circle of God's redemption. And there's so many more circles, but we just have time to look at four here. So the third one is God redeems spaces through compassionate engagement. God redeems spaces through compassionate engagement. And I think the best thing to, to illustrate this is, is a story that just happened recently. Uh, there was a team from Ramp Church that went to serve at an incredible family inside of Ramp Church that needed help with their garden. Now, um, in, in the not too distant past, uh, the father in the home passed away. And so you can see, you could really see kind of the results of, of, of that hardship in just the, the condition of the garden around the home. So a spirit-infused community uh, decided to go, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna do a, a cleanup project. We're gonna redeem this garden space. And so they just spent a day cleaning up the garden space. And you go, man, isn't that, isn't that nice? And, and it was nice in and of itself, but to me, just as much as anything, it was a metaphor for God's redemption project that this is this is a, a literal space that had been that had been marked with the results of something God didn't design. God didn't design death, and so what happens when a spirit-infused community starts to to compassionately engage in the world around them? They start to redeem spaces. And the amazing thing about that is that kind of unlocked a chain reaction. So the first way that that our Ramp Church community discovered that there was a need is because is because one of our team members delivered food to that family in need. And they noticed when they showed up to deliver food during this, this time of need that, hey, this garden needs tidying up. So they passed that along to some of our team members that that love to serve in that way. And then a team went to serve to, to redeem that. Well, the, the, the next door neighbor had had uh, act, actually dumped some, some uh, rubbish into the garden of, of this family that had, that had gone through this hard time. And isn't that how injustice actually happens? By people that are strong, they, they are actually exploiting the, the, the condition of the vulnerable. So for two years, this rubbish had been sitting in the garden of this family. And one of our team members noticed that and said, why is all this rubbish here? Is this yours? And they said, no, it's our, it's our neighbors. But because of where we're at, uh, we haven't had really a good relationship with our neighbors, and so they've never come over here to clean it. So that team member went next door, talked about it with this neighbor, and the neighbor agreed, yes, we're going to come clean that up. But not only that, uh, uh, about an hour later, that family brought over some clothes to give to this family in need. So now what started off as a meal turned into a garden renovation project. Now it's turned into the start of a reconciliation of, of a relationship between neighbors that had had hostility 
all from just a spirit-infused community deciding we're going to compassionately engage in a space. What would happen, Ramp Church, if we if we if we took that kind of that kind of engagement across our whole city? I'll tell you what would happen is spaces all across our city would start to be redeemed. But that's the way God is going to redeem creation. He starts with our own personal lives, but then he moves to our relationships, and then he moves to literal spaces, households, gardens, neighborhoods. This is the process of God's redemption. And then finally, he redeems whole cities through vocational participation. Now, there is a whole series in that, and it's been stirring in me for weeks but I probably won't preach it for a few months. But I will tell you, this is about how your work, your Monday through Saturday, the thing, your your career, the thing that you are, are, are probably making money based on, but there is actually a vocational participation that you can have in the redemption of, of whole cities. So God is all about redeeming cities. And once we get out of this, God's whole end with this thing is heaven, we can realize, wait a second, his desire isn't for me to escape earth. It's for me to help and be a part of the project of redeeming earth. That, that the end of this is a new heaven and a new earth. The, the, the theologian N.T. Wright says it like this, we're on the road to new creation. And he, he, you know, he's a theologian, but he's also a dad. So he gives like the ultimate theological dad joke. He, he says heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. I think that's hilarious, but it, it, it is important, but it's not the end of the world. Heaven is a holding space. It, it's kind of like, it's, it, it's, it's a womb for new creation. Eventually, God's gonna, gonna create a new heaven and a new earth, and everything you and I do in this redemption project will last for all of eternity. Let's be a part of this redemption project, and that is really the foundation that we need to understand. We could honestly talk for weeks and weeks about that, but that's the foundation we need to understand to understand that there is a beauty injustice. So to lay the the groundwork for the rest of of our talk about justice, I want to take us into the story of Israel. Now, are you hanging with me? I I hope you're with me. Israel's Israel's history, um, because they, they continually over centuries turned their back on God, eventually led them to a place where they were taken captive by other nations. And first it was Assyria, and then it was Babylon, and they were exiled, like a, like a whole people group was taken to another nation. Um, and the empire of Babylon um, was in control. Now, there was a point in, excuse me, in Israel's history where they were sent back to the, to the land they lived in, back to Jerusalem, and they started to do the things that they did um, when they had their own nation. And so this is a type of redemption project. And so much of Isaiah, the, the, the second half of Isaiah, really is all about the redemption project of Israel trying to redeem the place that God had put them. And so we're, I, I want to take you into Israel's story and show you where they were at in their redemption project. And what had happened is they'd started religious activities but there were some things in the middle of this redemption project that they neglected, okay? So they were doing religious things. They were going to church. They were fasting. They were praying. They were worshiping. But there were things that was part of the redemption project of God for them that they rejected. And I think, Ramp Church, you and I are going to get some insights into perhaps some things that we need to put some more emphasis on. So let's look at what God is saying to the prophet Isaiah 
about Israel. This is what God says to Isaiah. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people. God is getting serious with Isaiah who is his, so to speak, mouthpiece to Israel. And he's saying, I want you to to raise your voice like a trumpet. Yell this to the people of Israel. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. This is some heavy-duty stuff here. God's saying they've rebelled against me. They've turned their backs on me, gone their own way, and then they've, they've, they've entered into lifestyles of breaking God's law over and over and over and over. Let's look to see what God calls sin and rebellion. For day after day they seek me out, They seem eager to know my ways. Isn't that interesting? God's speaking to his people who are actually seeking him. They're pursuing God. And then they're eager. They're passionate. Their pursuit is passion-filled. They're not apathetic towards the things of God. They want God. They're seeking God out as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions. So they're a praying people. So they're pursuing God's presence. They have a passion in their hearts. They're praying. They're asking God things. These are all good things, right? Uh, These are things that I want for you and I, Ram Church. I want us to be a a people that pursues God. We pray. We're we're passionate. We're not forsaking the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. And I hope hope that can be said of, of us, Ram Church, that we're eager, we're passionate about God coming near to us. And then they say back to God, why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it, God? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? And God says back, yet on the day of fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. God's getting into what he views as rebellion and sin. So they're seeking God, they're passionate about Him, they're praying, but all the time while they're doing that in the middle of God's redemption project, they're not treating each other well. They're exploiting people. They're exploiting their workers. Their fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is humility just about groveling is basically what God's saying and feeling bad for yourself. Is that what you call a fast? God's getting a little sassy. He's getting sarcastic here. Is that what you call a fast? A day that you think that's acceptable to me, God said? Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? God's about to get serious and he's about to make it plain. The fast I have chosen, God's saying, is to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. This is pretty serious stuff. In the middle of this redemption process, Israel's joined the project of God, and 
there, there may be on those first couple steps, uh, uh, those circles of the redemption project where they're allowing God to maybe get in their own life. They're starting maybe some, some, some relational change amongst the church, but ultimately there's this whole community aspect that they're missing. There's this whole injustice that they are not rejecting while, they're, while they are living in this place where they're satisfying their own maybe consciences because we're praying, we're fasting, we're worshiping. I told you, Ram Church, this is a bit of a challenging message. And at this point, I think it's fair just to take some self-reflection, isn't it? And go, wow, you know, this is a this is this is some religious activity maybe that we're doing, but how do we view justice in our community and in my own life? And Isaiah isn't the only one to speak to this. This is actually a theme all throughout. The Bible, the, the prophet Zechariah talks about this as well. Look at, look at Zechariah. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. And ultimately, I, I want to summate Israel's idea, the, the God's people's idea um, on what, what they thought and, and, and how they missed it. And I want to do it with this principle right here. Look at this. God's people equated religious activity with genuine faith. But God equates genuine faith with acts of justice. I'm going to read that again. God's people equated religious activity. Let's go back. Yep, a religious activity with genuine faith. But God equates genuine faith with acts of of justice. I, I don't know about you, but it's it's really easy for even in my own heart, my own life, for me to kind of slip into that. Um, I'm even reminded of in the New Testament, you go, Joe, this is a lot of Old Testament verses. What about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament, 1 John chapter 4, they talk about love and the way we know that we love God is because of the way we love one another. And I, I get this mixed up all the time. I think, no, 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 no. You can see that I love God based on how how passionate I worship and how passionate I preach and how much I love to read the word and pray. But God's saying, no, the, the, the way I equate genuine faith is, is, is with acts of justice. It's the way you treat one another. It's love and compassion for one another. And in this chapter here at Ramp Church that we're in, where we're, we're exploring what does compassion look like? What does it look like to be people of hope that are hot spots of hope for the world around us? We also need to look, look at what does it look like to be people of justice? What does it look like to be people that have genuine faith? And, um, you know, I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus is teaching. Um, and he talks about how the way you treat others is ultimately the way you're treating him, the way you're treating him. So it's important, Ramp Church, for us to understand that God is equating genuine faith with acts of justice. I, I, think, of, um, I think of even the way I, I interact with my kids. You know, it's, it's a rule at our house that before you can have screen time, before our kids can have screen time, their rooms have to be clean. Um, so uh, sometimes we'll, we'll have like a movie night as a family and I am just loving it because I have three girls. So, um, you know, I'm just, the, I'm just the king of the house at that moment, right? We're watching a film. The girls are just, we're cuddled up together on the, on the sofa. It's just amazing. It's like my favorite place on planet earth to be. So we're watching a film together. But, uh, 
most of the time, they're, they are just perfect at keeping that kind of house rule. We're going to clean our rooms before we get on any screens. But there has been a time recently where I've, I've taken, a, taken a toilet break, left the film, and on, on my way to the bathroom, I peek in their room, and it looks like Oxfam Charity Shop just did a clothes drop-off in the middle of their floor. Uh, there are clothes everywhere. It's a disaster. And at that point... I, 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 you know, I go back down to the living room and, I, and I'm thinking, okay, we were, we were cuddling and yes, that was fun, but, but we're missing something here because that was a sign of affection. But what's also a sign of affection is that you do what I've asked you to do. And at that point, I wonder, are you really cuddling with me on the sofa because you love me? Are you really cuddling with me on the sofa because it's easier than cleaning your room? And I think that's one of the things that God's trying to get at with Isaiah and Zechariah. He's trying to say, you love my presence because my presence is, is a wonderful experience. But if you really loved me, you would also love the things I love. And you would also care for the things I care about. And that's why Jesus would say things like this. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. That's a tough one. That's a tough one because we think, we, we, we stop love after an affection, don't we? We, we think love ends after, when I feel it. And most of the time, our, our lives of justice kind of live in that space. Well, I don't really feel like helping the poor. So I'm not going to. But what happens if love is not just a feeling, but love is sometimes a choice, it's an action. Uh, there are times I know when Stacy is not feeling affection to do certain things for me, but she does it because she loves me, not because she's overwhelmed with feelings to want to sacrifice or to do something that she knows that I like that's maybe difficult for her. And I think God views that the same way. Maybe we want to cuddle on the sofa with him and have a film night, but our room's a disaster. <laughs> our relationships are a disaster. There's injustice in our city. And that doesn't mean we can't enjoy him. It just means we can't just enjoy him. It means there also needs to be a simultaneous leaning in to acts of justice. And this is, this is the, the principle that I want you to understand. It's right here. Um, sincere acts of worship must be accompanied by intentional acts of justice. Sincere acts of worship must be accompanied by intentional acts of justice. I want to dive into that passage I mentioned a little while ago in Matthew chapter 25. Look at this. Matthew 25, starting verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, this is Jesus talking about the end of all things. And, and he's saying, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Whoa. So these are people at the end of all of this. And Jesus is saying, hey, here's your reward. Well done. Why would they have gotten a reward? Jesus is about to tell us. Uh, for I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. This is what Jesus is saying right here. Look at this next slide. Sincere acts of worship must be accompanied by intentional acts of justice. To identify with God is to identify with the poor. To relate to God means relating to the poor. To serve God means serving the poor. To pursue God means pursuing the poor. To stand for God means to stand with the poor. Do you realize Christianity is the, is the only religion in, in history where God actually identified with those at the bottom of the ladder instead of those at the top. All other ancient religions, God, the, the gods of those, of those religions, they identified with the kings and the high priests uh, and, and those that at the top of commerce and everybody else was exploited. The vulnerable was exploited because they spoke for God. But God came along and all through the Old Testament, he's identifying with those at the bottom of the ladder. And then Jesus comes along and he doesn't just metaphorically or through his teachings identify, he literally identifies with the poor. Jesus was born in a feeding trough, in a manger. He, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. His only possession, his cloak was people... People uh, paid money for it after he was gone. He, he didn't have a house. He roamed about. So Jesus literally identified with the poor. And what does it mean to be the people of God? It means to be with Jesus in that identification. To identify with God is to identify with the poor. To relate to God means relating to the poor. To serve God means serving the poor. To pursue God means pursuing the poor. And to stand for God means to stand with the poor ramp church, this is, this is a difficult challenge, but it is a possible challenge. Why? Because we're not doing it alone. And you know what Romans 8 tells us? That actually all of creation around us is crying out for all things to be made new, all things to be made Right. Okay, so, so the next little section of this, and I'm going to talk, I'm going to make it practical in just a few minutes. But the next section of this, I'm actually going to answer this question. What is biblical justice? What is biblical justice? Because do you, I don't know if you realize this, but there's actually a lot of debate on what actually justice is. Well, what does it mean? What does justice mean? And if, if you were taking university courses on justice, they would talk about different perspectives. But the amazing thing, if you studied that, is most of those uh, most of those are involved in the biblical idea of justice. It doesn't just take a singular idea on what justice is. But I want to highlight three things that I feel like the Bible tells us that justice is. And I'm going to unpack each one of these a bit. They're a bit wordy, but I'm going to do some unpacking. So the first one is this. First thing I think the, the biblical justice is, I, I think it's equal treatment for all peoples through divine kinship. It's equal treatment for all peoples through divine kinship. And it's equal people for all races, all economic status, all social standing. Uh, it's equal treatment for all. That's what biblical justice looks like. And a part of God's redemption project is bringing equal treatment 
to all. And But how does God do that? I think that's one of the most impacting elements of that because that idea of justice, equal treatment, that, that's not unique to Christianity, but the how perhaps is. So it's equal treatment for all through divine kinship. I want to go back into Isaiah 58 and, and highlight a couple of verses. Look at this, verses six and seven. It, it, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and unite the cords of the yoke, uh, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the, the poor wanderer with shelter when you see, look at this, the naked to clothe them and to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Yeah, the, God's saying through the prophet Isaiah that all of these people, every different category of the marginalized and the poor and those at the bottom of the ladder, and then it even says the wanderer, which in modern times, we don't maybe quite understand all that that means, but in ancient times, those were foreigners. Those were maybe refugees. Those were people exiled from their nations who had just kind of arrived in Israel. And if you could realize how countercultural this was for God to speak into these people that were, that were so uh, focused on protecting their own, and God's saying, no, let me redefine who your own is. Those people are actually your own flesh and blood. They, they, it just, they don't have to be in your family tree. I'm defining all people. Jesus dealt with this with one, one of the religious leaders when he stole, told a story about somebody, um, uh, it's commonly called the Good Samaritan, somebody who had been cast to the side and, and the religious leader said, well, who's my neighbor? And Je the, the, the moral of Jesus' story was everybody, <laughs> whoever's in need, that's your neighbor. It's the same idea. God is trying to, to ramp church. He's trying to lead us into equal treatment for all, but not just as some pie-in-the-sky ideal. He wants it to come out of the inside out of us that we realize we are flesh and blood of every single person. We are kin. They are of us, and we are of them. That we are a part of one global family, divine kinship is one of the ways that God wants to bring equal treatment for all. Equal treatment for all. He wants to clothe the naked, not turn away, because they're our own flesh and blood. But he doesn't stop there. The next idea of biblical justice is this. He wants us to have equal treatment for all, but he wants us to have unique concern for those that are in poverty. So it's equal treatment for all, but there's unique concern for all poverty, and, and that, that comes through divine concealment, what I'm calling divine concealment. And that is this idea right here that we just read about Matthew 25. Look at this. Matthew 25, the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. What is divine concealment? It is this, when you, when you search out those at the bottom of the ladder, when you search out the, the, the poor, and that could be socially, that could be racially, that could be on the margins of, of our society, that could, be, um, that, that could be economically, it could be any way, when you search those people out, you, you will not just find them there, you will find God there too. 
Why are we to give unique concern to those on the margins of society, to those that are to, to those that are underprivileged, to those that have been exploited, to those that have been shown racism, to those that have been um, um, uh, uh, to those that have been exploited by by systems or by people in power? Because God is there too. That's what can fuel our desire to give unique concern to the needy. God is concealing himself there. Look at this. Jesus hides himself in the poor. Some of you have been crying out for more of God. Maybe in your own life. That's a prayer of yours. God, I want to know you more. I want, I want to experience you more. I want to find you more. I want to know your presence. I want to know your word. I want to be changed by you. Well, I just want to point you back to Isaiah 58, and the whole chapter is good, but there's a lot of promises in there as well, and part of the promises is you're going to find God when you start to do acts of justice. You're going to find God when you reach out to those in need. Why? Because Jesus is hidden there. He's not just in heaven. He's not just, he's not just in some ethereal state where through meditation and worship and prayer we find him. He's found in the poor, divine concealment. We show equal treatment for all peoples because of divine kinship. We, we take ownership that all of creation, all of humanity is our family. But we show unique concern for the poor because of divine concealment. God has hidden himself. And then the third, the third idea of biblical justice is this, that, that, that biblical justice is radical generosity in all things through divine provision. Radical generosity in all things through divine provision. And that, that key, that, this is key, divine provision. Why is it important for you to understand that everything you have comes from God. Because once you understand he gi he's given it to you, you don't mind giving it away. Let's go back to Isaiah 58. There's, it's such a rich chapter. But let, let's, let's look what God says here, starting in verse 10. He's, he's saying, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. How powerful is that? I love that, that Isaiah says here, if you spend yourselves for the poor. Well, why doesn't he say spend your money? <laughs> Because generosity is not just about money. It's about spending ourselves. Radical generosity is about giving ourselves. It's about putting ourselves in the place. Your person. Of course that includes money. Of course that includes physical and natural goods. But it also includes your emotional self, your mental self, your time, your energy. It, it includes putting, spending yourself for the poor. And I love that God put promises there. We don't do all these things because of the promises. I don't even think that's what God's trying to communicate. What God's trying to communicate is you don't realize you're trying to hold all you need like this 
But what, what you're keeping yourself from is receiving divine provision. When you start to live with radical generosity, I will give to you, and that should give you confidence that you can give more. We, God's, God's calling us to be a people of justice, and what it means to be a people of justice is we live with radical generosity, and we live with radical generosity in all things because we have divine provision. Divine provision. You know, Western culture... One of the reasons we don't do this in Western culture is because we have kind of this belief that, well, basically everything I have in life, I mean, I had a little bit of help, but everything I have is a result of my own work. I mean, what do you think? All that I have, I worked hard to get this. This is because of me. And But God's perspective, if you read the Bible, his perspective is different. He, he looks at it like this. Well, you know, you, you helped me out a little bit, but everything you have came from me. That's what God's saying. Everything you have, I gave you. Every opportunity was an opportunity that I gave you. The gifts that you have, the propensities that you have for success, your very intellect, your desires, your personality, all of that was a gift from God. The fact that when you were a child, you were born in a family that read books to you instead of neglected you. That's a gift from God. You didn't choose that. The fact that you grew up in a neighborhood where there was a school, that there was actually solid education, that's a gift from God. So we look at our lives and we're stingy because we think, oh, I did this anyway. And if they want, if they want to leg up, they can do it on their own. God doesn't look at your life that way. He looks at everything you have that it is divine provision. God provided it for you. And if God provided it for you, he can provide more, which means we can live with radical generosity. That is the way of the kingdom. I just want to recognize something at this point in the message. Oftentimes when I get to this point uh, in the topic of justice, people try to get political. And they think I'm trying to make a political or a governmental statement. And I want to tell you, that's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to pull from Scripture and go, what does God have to say about justice and the way we treat one another? But I do want to say this. If you're deeply committed to, what God, to God's opinion on some things, you will at some point disagree with every political philosophy. You can't put yourself fully in one political box and everything in that box agree with God. It's just not going to happen. Why? Because God's truth transcends all of those truths and he has his unique perspective on it. And it doesn't mean that some people have it right and some people have it wrong. And some, That's not what it's about. It's about aligning ourselves with God's truth regardless of which political persuasion that reinforces or that denies. And we need to be people who are committed to God's perspective first. And then we can work out, what does that mean to, to stand in a certain line politically? But for us, as people of God, we have to realize everything we have has been given to us by God. Yeah, you helped out a little bit. He wants you to. But everything you have is a gift from God. And so when he asks us to share it, that's his prerogative. But also, he promises to provide. He promises to pour out. You know, I think of um, the condition of, of um, people in our own city here in Greater Manchester and those that are vulnerable and in need right now. And regardless of your political persuasion, you know, if we look at 
at, at people who are in need. If if you know if you had maybe a more liberal perspective, you're going to go well. Those it's it's social inequality, it's economic inequality, and maybe if you're more of a uh, of a conservative perspective, you go well. It's the breakdown of the family, but no perspective, no perspective is going to say well. It's that seven year old's fault. It's that kid's fault. Nobody's going to say that. And it's our responsibility as the people of God who have received such abundance from God in so many ways to look at the plight of people and go, you know what? We have something to give. We have something to give to that. So what now? What do we do now? Well, I want to ask you to do three things. And this is the first thing I want to ask you to do. Don't wait for a plan. (laughs) Don't wait for a plan. Don't wait for a plan. Ah, in the West, that's what we think. All of this needs to be solved by a plan. That's what it's going to take. We just don't have the right plan in place. We don't have the right, we don't have the right social machinery in place to really facilitate change. I want to tell you, we've been trying to create change for centuries. Uh, we've had some pretty good plans. I really don't know if it's the plan, but there's even a deeper principle than that that I want to, I want to encourage you to do. And uh, Andy Stanley says this. I love this. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. What, how do you start this process? Don't wait for a plan. Just do for one what you wish you could wait, what you wish you could do for every person in your world or every person in greater Manchester. What would happen in Ramp Church if every person in Ramp Church just did for one? I tell you, it would be a ripple effect. We would see that, that project of redemption. We're jumping on God's project of redemption and we're seeing those circles just live out in front of us and a chain reaction would start to happen. Heidi Baker, the, the, the incredible missionary to Africa, says it like this, stop for the one. Stop for the one. Who is the one in your world that God's calling you? Don't wait for a plan. Just stop for the one Today. So the first thing I want you to do is don't wait for a plan, but I want you to stop for the one. The second thing I want you to do is this. Don't wait for a motive. Don't wait for a motive. Uh, so often we, we feel like we're held captive because, oh, I don't know if my motives are right. I don't, I don't love people enough. I don't have enough compassion for people. And I think that's a great thing to constantly set before the Holy Spirit. God, remake me from the inside. I want to love more. I, wanna, I want to have more compassion. But just start doing. Just start loving. When you don't feel love, do love. When you don't feel love, do love. I just want to encourage you with that. So don't wait for a motive. Do love. And C.S. Lewis says this great in Mere Christianity. I love this. He says, don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. Act as if you love your neighbor. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. I just love, I love that. It's incredible instructions and path ahead of you. Maybe you don't love as much as you should your neighbor. I certainly don't. So I'm, I'm, I repent regularly for my lack of love. And I want God to put more love in my heart. But all along, while he's, re, while he's rewiring my internal world, I want to be doing acts of love. I, I think about it like this. When, when Stacey and I raised our kids, there's, you know, there's just this connection you have with your kids, isn't it? Isn't it? It's just like, a, it's almost like a spiritual connection. But also, if you took out all the sacrifices along the way, 
um, I don't know if I would love them as much as I do. I think some of my love is actually grown in the soil of sacrifice. So there is a spiritual connection to my kids, but there's also a sacrificial connection. In other words, I will remember forever the nights I spent with my children walking in the middle of the night in the pitch black, trying to get them back to sleep to calm them. And it was through that sacrifice. Now, I didn't love them in my heart in that moment. It's not like I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I just love, I'm, oh, I have so much affection for my baby who's keeping me up again at three in the morning. No, it was an act of love. It didn't have the feeling of love. It was an act of love. But something through that sacrificial connection starts to birth love in you. And nobody else can love my kids the way I do. Why? Because they didn't sacrifice for my kids the way I did. What happens if you start sacrificing for your city, for those at the bottom of the ladder, for the marginalized and the poor, for those that are at, at the end of injustice? You will start to love them the way you should. Just start acting. Don't wait for a motive. And then the third one, this seems self-serving, but it isn't. It's for you. Look at this. Don't miss serve day. <laughs> don't miss serve day. So don't wait on a plan. Don't wait on a motive. And then don't miss serve day, okay? A week from today, we are putting this message and this chapter of Ramp Church into motion. We're putting it into motion, okay? Three days from now, you'll be able to sign up online. And that's, I want you to, to, to not miss this opportunity to, as the people of God, express a heart of justice and love and compassion to our city. It is, again, Serve Day is the 25th of July, but you'll be able to register online, ramp.church slash MCR this coming Wednesday. Ramp Church, I want us to be people of justice. I want us to be a people that, yes, we have sincere worship, but we, but we realize that connected to sincere worship are intentional acts of justice. What are intentional acts of justice? They are when we, we, when we see uh, people that aren't treated equally, we're, we come in to correct that. When we see that there isn't unique concern for those that are marginalized, for those that are, are being shown injustice, we come in to support that. When we see that there are those in need, we show radical generosity in all things. Ramp Church, let's respond to this call today. Let me pray over you. Father, thank you that your spirit is the spirit of justice. And we're not, we're not alone in this. This isn't some sort of... Um, uh, of carnal just uh, uh, machinery that we just get moving on the inside, but it is through simple acts of obedience and love and compassion that, that we can join your redemption pro project for all of creation. And I, I just ask, Father, that Ramp Church would be a people today that say yes to you. Give us the grace to say yes. Fill our imagination with the possibilities of what can come to our city and our families, our neighborhoods, as we join this project of redemption. In Jesus' name.